Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let me invite you to take your Bible this morning and join me in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And I want to talk to you on the subject of marks of a healthy community of faith. Many times I'm asked by pastors and people who watch seminaries, what are you guys doing? Uh, what kind of pastors and ministers for the churches are, are you trying to produce? Are you trying to train? And uh, often I will give a very short, concise answer that goes something like this. Well, our goal uh, is to produce devoted, even, even radical followers of Jesus Christ who are Great Commission Christians. And that really is what Southeastern Seminary is all about. But I think there's another way to add to that explanation and to complement that. And that is we're trying to train pastors. And we're trying to train ministers who will go out and build healthy communities of faith. And I believe Hebrews chapter 13 gives us wonderful insight into what such a community of faith looks like. You see, the book of Hebrews is all about the superiority and the greatness of Jesus Christ. It is a book that the author 13 times will use the word better or superior. To emphasize that Jesus Christ is the very best that God could have sent. Nothing that went before him was better than him. And nothing that will come after him is better than him. Uh, he is our great high priest, a theme only noted in the book of Hebrews. He is the often finisher of our faith, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He is the king priest who wonderfully fulfills the promises of Psalm 110. And indeed, the Scriptures give us the book of Hebrews to, to inspire us and also to enable us, as chapter 12 says, to run well the race that is set before us. Well, if we are indeed to run that race well, what will that look like then as we flesh it out in the everyday life of a local community of faith? I agree with those who believe that Hebrews is a giant sermon or perhaps a collection of sermons. And as is often the case, after giving us the, the exposition in chapter 13, you receive the application and the, the exhortation. In fact, George Guthrie of Union University says it quite well. He says of chapter 13, it is a strategically crafted final movement to this powerful sermon. It is a series of robust exhortations for living out the Christian faith in the details of daily responsibility. It is a chapter of 25 verses, and in those 25 verses you find no less than 12 imperatives, wherein the author of Hebrews commands us to live in a certain kind of a way in response to the perfect atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Hebrews 13 is not about how to get saved. Rather, Hebrews 13 is about how the saved live out 
their lives. In many ways, chapter 13 is a, a bad chapter division because actually this section of Scripture rolls right out of chapter 12 and verse 28 where the Bible says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, uh, let us then have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. And then comes these 12 exhortations that we find in these 25 verses. I believe we can summarize what we find in chapter 13 in terms of nine propositions, or as I said, nine marks of a healthy community of faith. My goal is to get through all 25 verses, so buckle your seatbelt and let's move quickly. Number one, a healthy community of faith will consistently love each other. The text begins, let brotherly love continue. You see, this is the foundation for the body of Christ. Uh, without love, we are not the body of Christ. Without love, we are a sham. Without love, we send an uncertain, unclear, and indeed a dishonest signal to the world that is watching us very carefully. The word here for brotherly love, of course, is related to that word Philadelphia. He combines the word phileo, love, and Adelphos, brother. And so he talks about a family kind of love. And, of course, we are able to exhibit and to live out this kind of love because by God's grace, we all have the same Father. Furthermore, it is a, an imperative. It is a command. He is commanding us to love. You see, in the biblical sense, in its truest sense, uh, love is not an emotion. Uh, love is a, a volitional decision, an act of your will, whereby you choose to bless and seek the best in the lives of other people. Of course, the Bible is replete with commands for us to love one another. It's filled with commands that you find in Matthew 22, 39, and John 13, 34, and Romans 13, 8, and of course that magnificent text, 1 Corinthians 13, again, 1 Peter 1, 22, 1 John 3, 11, 4, 7, and 11. In other words, the Bible has a lot to say about you and me rightly loving one another. Of course, we should never get far from the words of Jesus, who said in John chapter 13 and verse 35, It is by this that all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, love, Christians loving one another, has an evangelistic and missionary element. It has an effect. Indeed, if the lost see us loving one another in this kind of a way, they are attracted to the Jesus, to the gospel that makes all of this possible. One of my heroes is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was without any question the greatest theologian ever produced on American soil. He lived from 1703 to 1758. He wrote many, many volumes, but one of his books is entitled Charity and Its Fruits. And in that book, Jonathan Edwards raises a very interesting question, and it's simply this. What is it that makes the church like heaven? And he had a single response. It is love. Love is what makes the church like heaven. And when we are loving one another as we ought, the world sees something of what is going to be like for all of eternity when we're together as the family of God in heaven. No, a church that is marked by health will be a church that will consistently love one another. Might it be the case, brothers and sisters, that the reason our witness today is in so many places ineffective is because the body of Christ doesn't do a very good job of loving one another. We beat each other up. We criticize each other. 
We don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. Now, I'll tell you something. Love will do those things. It will give the benefit of the doubt. It will heal up, not beat up. And it will seek the best in the lives of others that you may not like. But by God's supernatural enablement, you are able to love. Number two, we also see a healthy community of faith will care for those in need. In verse two and in verse three, Paul talks about the author of Hebrews talks about us caring for those who are in unfortunate situations. He says there, do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. The next verse, remember the prisoner as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body. He uses two more imperatives here in verse 2 and in verse 3. Verse 2, do not forget. Verse 3, remember. In other words, we are challenged to help those in need. And he puts two different groups before us. The stranger in verse 2 and the prisoner in verse 3. In other words, he's now going to develop for us what does loving one another with brotherly love look like in real life. And he says, well, number one, you'll show hospitality to those that you don't know. And secondly, you will seek out those who are hurting and in need. And in particular, he notes here the stranger. In other words, our churches will be marked by hospitality. Or as one man said, it will be marked by ministries of mercy. In our churches, in our homes, grace will be opened and it will allow all to see the beautiful fragrance of the gospel that is made possible as we love one another, love those we don't know, and love those who are hurting and in trouble. Of course, he is probably picking up on the story of Abraham and the angels in Genesis chapter 18. And therefore, he warns us, be careful, because those that you entertain, though they may not look like it, they could indeed be angels unawares. Unfortunately, in the day in which we live, many people find the community of that which should exist in the church in other places. They find more community in a bar or in a health club or at the Barnes and Nobles or at the Starbucks. And what a shame that they don't feel that same kind of reception, that same kind of welcome in our churches and in our homes. No biblical uh, hospitality. We'll know nothing of racial, social, economic or cultural barriers that eclipse the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And once more, I want to emphasize the racial barrier. I, again, have argued for many years that uh, until we get this right, we have no reason to expect God to bless us. We have no reason to expect God to be gracious to us. That We have no reason for God to indeed come in our midst because we are an offense to the gospel. I'm a Georgian. Uh, Tara, I used to play football, not very well, but I used to play football in Tara Stadium in Jonesboro, Georgia, which is the very source of the Gone with the Wind uh, drama. And so I'm a proud Georgian, but I'm not always a proud Southerner. And I can remember a few years ago some folks in the Deep South getting all hot and bothered about the fact that in Georgia we were going to set aside the Confederate flag as our state flag. And they tried to make all sorts of bizarre, strange, weird, and absurd arguments to try to justify putting something up on a pole that was a great offense and a horrible reminder to many of the African-American heritage of what once was the case in America and in many cases 
perpetuated by those who claimed to follow Christ. Shame on us that still the most segregated hour of the week is on Sunday morning at whatever time you come together. And brothers and sisters, read the book of Revelation, and it tells us very clear that at the throne, people will be there from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Red, yellow, black, white, and brown will all be there worshiping the Lamb. And therefore, all barriers, all barriers, all barriers need to come down if we're going to indeed proclaim an authentic gospel to a cynical, skeptical world. Again, it amazes me. We can integrate the military. We can integrate athletics. But for some reason, we just can't get around to integrating the church, the body of Christ. Shame on us for not living out with authenticity the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the text also says that we will care for prisoners. You know, it's interesting. Strangers may surprise us, but prisoners have to be sought out. And I recognize that that can be a very messy ministry. It can be a very dirty ministry. It can be a very disappointing ministry. And yet at the same time, it can be an incredibly rewarding ministry as well. In this context, of course, he is talking about brothers and sisters in Christ who have been imprisoned, perhaps for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, don't you forget them. Uh, You live in the same body. The word body there probably means the world. That's how he's using it. You're in the world like they're in the world. And so you should identify yourself with them as if you were there with them. And again, Jesus addresses this very powerfully in Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 through 40. Listen to it as I read it. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And yes, a healthy community of faith will care for those who are in need. Number three, a healthy community of faith will honor the divine institution of marriage and family. Verse four. Uh, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. This is where the counterculture of the gospel should shine very, very brightly. And yet we have to admit that it has often been quite dim and quite dim for some time. And again, I'm convinced of this. Weak homes will inevitably lead to weak churches. And tragically, we see this again throughout our evangelical community today. It's also interesting to note that in verse 4, there's actually not a verb form. And so scholars differ as to how we are to understand it. But I think the imperative idea should be uh, at least implied there so that it would read, let marriage be held in honor. And then he says something very interestingly, the marriage bed is undefiled. Well, what is he getting at there? It's simply a euphemism for sexual intercourse. And what he is telling us is this, sex is a good gift from a great God. But this good gift from this great God has certain parameters that are to guide it, 
protect it and maximize it in terms of protection and pleasure and partnership. And that parameter is called marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman is the right place for this wonderful gift called sex to be enacted and also to be enjoyed. So, in other words, and hear me and hear me well, premarital sex is sinful and wrong. Extramarital sex is sinful and wrong. Unnatural sex is sinful and it is wrong. I like John MacArthur's comment on what this verse is getting at. He says, within marriage, sex is beautiful, fulfilling, creative. I like that. But outside of marriage, it is... uh, MacArthur said it, not me. I mean, you expect... You know, you'd expect me to say it, but that's MacArthur. I mean, when I read that, I said, I've got to use that, so it's in my notes. John MacArthur, sex is creative. But outside of marriage, he is so right. It is ugly. It is destructive. And it is damning. And yes, marriage has been and continues to be assaulted. Sex is abused in our culture and, yes, even in our churches. And again, we have a pretty pathetic record in addressing this malady that is so infecting so many today. Divorce is accepted as just being inevitable. Premarital sex, not a big deal. Affairs, hey, they just happen. Children today are often viewed as a burden. And wives and mothers, of course, need their careers And husbands and fathers are nothing more than buffoons who are to be pitied and not respected. So I want to be very practical with you for just a moment. As a pastor, as a minister, uh, I would challenge you in the following context. Don't you even consider marrying anyone who does not agree to go through extensive premarital counseling with you or somebody else. They agree to do that or you just simply say, I love you. Uh, I will pray for you, but I will not marry you. That has been my policy all of my 30-plus years in ministry. I see no reason at this point in time to change my mind because it does make a difference. But let me set another challenge before you today in in the context of our sons, our our daughters, and just how we should understand marriage. I want to challenge you in your ministries, in your churches, to cultivate a mindset that will foster the following. Number one, masculine sons. Men who love Jesus and dream of doing something great for him, something that they see in their fathers, in their daddies. Secondly, feminine daughters who love Jesus and dream of pouring their lives into children who will soar for the glory of God. Marriage as a sacred divine covenant meant for life. Now, again, let me just step aside for a moment. Brothers and sisters, you can be both prophetic and redemptive here, and you need to be both. Prophetically, we do not need to back up from the proposition of what the Scriptures clearly teach. God hates divorce. He has always hated divorce. He still hates divorce. He will always hate divorce. And so you need to raise the prophetic bar very, very high. And at the same time, you need also to be redemptive and pastoral with those who have gone through the sorrow, the hurt, and the pain of divorce. You need to remind them that none of us can change our past. Would to God that we could all go back and change some things we did in the past. No one who is sitting before you week after week can change their past. But by God's grace, they can certainly see a difference in their present and in their future. 
And you can challenge young people not to follow the same paths of so many parents and grandparents who miss this and miss this even within the context of the Christian faith. No, we need to help them understand that God has not changed his mind about the sacred nature of marriage. And then sex. Help them understand that it is not a dirty or ugly thing. It is a precious and dangerous gift from God that must be handled wisely and with care. And again, a closing word before I move on. I say it so many times, but again, it's such a great burden in my heart. Be wise, be discerning, and be smart and realize the wrong person plus the wrong place plus the wrong time will inevitably lead to the wrong thing happening. I don't care how much you love Jesus. Your hormones can override your brain and shut it down. David was a man after God's own heart. Wrong person, wrong place, wrong time. Oh, yeah, the wrong thing happened. He lied, he committed adultery, and he murdered. Never forget the example of David. Number four, a healthy community of faith will have an unshakable faith in God's providence. Look at what it says there in verse five and verse six. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, quoting the Old Testament here, actually bringing several passages together that you could cite. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Often the sins of immorality and covetousness accompany one another. It's not by accident that they stand as the seventh and eighth side by side of the Ten Commandments. You say, why is that the case? Well, it's the case because sexual immorality and the love of money seek satisfaction and they seek gratification in denial of God's goodness and God's provision. In other words, both of those sins are rooted both in unbelief in God's providence and tragically, they ultimately give way to idolatry and the worship of a false god. Verse 5 says in a single word in the Greek text, be no lover of money. Paul addresses this for ministers in particular in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out of it. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be Content. However, the really fantastic and glorious grounding of these instructions is found in verse 5 and verse 6. What follows in the form of two magnificent promises, as I mentioned a moment ago, draw from wonderful Old Testament texts like Joshua 1.5 and Psalm 27 verse 1 and Psalm 118 verse 25. First promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Second promise, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Interestingly, in the Greek text, he uses a double negative in both of those promises. In other words, no, never will I leave you. And no, not do you need to fear. In other words, because he will never leave us, there is no reason then for us to fear. In other words, his argument goes something like this. You can pursue money which will never satisfy and may even abandon you. Or you can run to the Lord, who is your helper, who will no, not leave you, nor no, not forsake you. In other words, one you can never count on, and the other will never let you down. Many of you know that my wife, Charlotte, was born into the home of alcoholic parents. And when she was seven, they divorced. And after bouncing around from one home to another and then to another, at the age of nine, 
She was placed in the Georgia Baptist Children's Home where she would live until she was 18. Uh, during those years, she never saw her mother. In fact, the last time she saw her mother as a nine-year-old little girl, she was sitting on a bench out on the front porch. Her mother came out and slapped her in the face and knocked her out into the front yard and said, all of this is your fault. Turned around, walked into the house. She would not see her mother again until she was 18. Her daddy came to see her a couple of times in her first months at the children's home, and then she would not see her father again until after we were married. But God was being providential in all of this, and when she was about 11 years old, the First Baptist Church in Fairburn, Georgia, God saved her. She gave her heart to the Lord. And if you were to get with my wife and you were to ask her, Charlotte, when you got saved, what was the most wonderful part of being saved? Was it knowing that all of your sins have been forgiven? And she would say, no, that, that's wonderful, but not the most wonderful to me. You say, well, is it knowing that when you die, you'll go to be with the Lord and that you'll be with him forever? And she said, oh, that's very wonderful, too. But no, for me, that wasn't the most wonderful. And so if you were depressed and say, well, I, I don't know where else to go. So let me just ask you, what was the most wonderful thing about getting saved? And she would say to you, the most wonderful thing for me when I got saved was that I got a new daddy. And my new daddy promised me in his word, he would never leave me and he would never forsake me. And he's always kept his word. Brothers and sisters, I don't care where you are today or what you're going through. His promise is unshakable. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Nothing is happening in your life that does not come through the hands of a loving heavenly father who has a purpose, even in your pain, to bring glory to his name and good into your life. You see, the one who has Jesus and nothing actually has everything. But the one who has everything and not Jesus actually has nothing. You can trust in his providence with an unshakable faith. Number five, a healthy community of faith will respect those who teach the word and shepherd their souls. This is emphasized in verse 7 where the Bible says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, those faith, whose faith you should follow concerning the outcome of their conduct. Again, look at verse 17. Obey, a strong word. Obey those who rule over you uh, and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and without grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Again, look at verse 24. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Three times in this chapter, he addresses those who lead the church. We're to remember them. Uh, we are to obey and be submissive to them. We are to greet those who rule over them. Why are we to do this? Well, very quickly, he gives you six reasons. Let me note them. First of all, they spoke the word to us. Verse 7. Number 7, they provide an example to us to follow. Verse 7. Uh, they watch out for our spiritual well-being. Verse 17. They will give an accounting to God. Verse 17. They should be able to serve with joy and not grief. Verse 17. And it will be unprofitable for us if we don't. Now, the author of Hebrews does not have blind loyalty in view here. 
But he does have a biblical and theologically informed argument that notes the allegiance that we are to give those who lead us and who give watch care over our souls. Now, because of my audience, let me flip it for a moment. What is it that we are to be doing that will indeed inspire and move and motivate them to trust us and follow us in that kind of a way. I'll make quick three observations from the text. Number one, preach the word and preach all of it. He says there that these are those who rule over us who have spoken the word of God to us. I like what Mark Dever says in his book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. The first mark of a healthy church is expository preaching. It is not only the first mark, it is far and away the most important of them all. Because if you get this one right, all the others should follow. And he is exactly correct. Number two, be an example worthy of their emulation. Nothing unbiblical, nothing unethical, nothing immoral, nothing unlegal, uh, illegal. Be someone that little boys in particular can look up to, admire, and have as a goal to emulate and follow in your footsteps. Thirdly, We shepherd the flock of God under our care. We treat them not as if they are something given to us for us to manipulate and use. But as good shepherds, we communicate to them our love and even our willingness to lay down our lives for our sheep. And I'll tell you something. That can't happen in a day, a month, or even a year. That comes after years of pouring your life into a people so that they know that you love them. They know that they can trust you. And when they know that they are loved and they can trust you, then they will follow you. Number six, a healthy church will not be moved away from Christ-centered doctrine. Verse eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, I could add, do not be carried away with various and Strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have no profit, uh, which have not profit those who have been uh, occupied with them. In other words, the author of Hebrews is simply saying at the center of the Christian life is Christ. Why should we focus our life on Christ? He tells you he's the same yesterday. He's the same today. And he is the same forever. F.F. Bruce, the wonderful New Testament scholar, I think gets at the heart of what Paul is saying here when he says this about this verse. Yesterday, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. Chapter 5, verse 7. Today, he represents his people in the presence of God, a high priest who is able to sympathize with them in their weakness because he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Chapter 4, verse 15. Forever he lives, this same Jesus. To make intercession for them, chapter 7, verse 25. His help, His grace, His power, His guidance are permanently at His people's disposal. Why then should they lose heart? Others served their generation by the will of God and passed on. But He, because He abideth forever, hath His priesthood unchangeable, chapter 7, verse 24. He never needs to be replaced, and nothing can be added to His perfect Work, And therefore, the changeless and incomparable Christ of verse 8 
is now contrasted with changing doctrine, what he describes as various and strange doctrines. What do these doctrines do? Well, again, very quickly, number one, they misunderstand grace. That's the theme of verse 9. Secondly, they draw back from embracing the sufferings of Christ as a sufficient sacrifice for sin, verses 10 through 12. Uh, They draw back from bearing the reproaches. That we should experience in the fact that we identify with a suffering Savior. And fourthly, they lose an eternal perspective that brings a healthy perspective about what life truly is all about. Again, I think Calvin captures the basic thrust of these verses. And he says this, the only way by which we can persevere or preserve in the right faith is to hold to the foundation and not in the smallest degree to depart from it. For he who holds not to Christ knows nothing but mere vanity, though he may comprehend heaven and earth. For in Christ are included all the treasures of celestial wisdom. This then is a remarkable passage from which we learn that there is no other way of being truly wise than by fixing all of our thoughts on Christ and Christ alone. Number seven. A healthy community of faith will be characterized by the spiritual sacrifices of praise, number one, thanksgiving, number two, and service, number three. In his wonderful study of Hebrews, Leon Morris, who I would commend to you in every area, anything Leon Morris writes, you are wise uh, to buy, you will be blessed and instructed. He has a great text in uh, his commentary on Hebrews that gets again at the essence of what these verses are saying. I quote, The word sin occurs 25 times in this epistle, more often than in any other New Testament book except Romans, where it is there 48 times. The frequency with which the writer refers to it shows that he sees sin as the greatest barrier between God and man. He writes in the glad certainty that this barrier has been demolished. Christ has opened up the way to God by taking our sin out of the way. There are many ways in which he sees Christ to have done this. Now, listen very carefully. Christ made propitiation for our sins, 2.17. He offered a sacrifice for sins, 10.12. He did away with sin, 9.26. He bore sin, 9.28. Because of what He has done, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin, 10.18. Christ's death is a ransom to set people free from sins, even those committed in Old Testament days, 9.15. By contrast... The older way could not deal with sin, 10, 1 through 2, 4, 6, and 11. Clearly then, the writer sees the salvation Christ brought about as many-sided. And here's what I love. Look at sin how you will. The Son has dealt with it. And in verses 10 through 13, he addresses the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. The details, if you read commentators, get all confused here. That There's much debate, but I think the gist of what he's saying in these verses can be summarized as follows. His cross is our altar. His cross provides the food of grace, forgiveness, cleansing, hope, and thanksgiving. His cross fulfilled the day of atonement. His cross sanctifies us by his blood as he suffered outside the city of Jerusalem. Indeed, I think an excellent commentary on what he is saying here is Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And so in verses 13 through 16, he addresses now 
our appropriate response to this great sacrifice. Verse 13, he says, we will bear his shame as we pursue him. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Verse 14 says, we will have an eternal world to come perspective. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. He addressed that city back in chapter 12, verse 22, as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 15, he says, we will offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And verse 16 We will offer them the sacrifice of a shared life, but do not forget to do good and to share for those who were with such. For with these things, God is indeed well pleased. John Piper, I think, summarizes well what is being said here. The point is that people who get their strength and wisdom from the altar of the cross, from Jesus Christ, are people who live for others. They get up in the morning and they think about how they can do the most good for other people today. What what a great way to live. This then is the sacrifice that they offer to the Lord day after day. Number eight, a healthy community of faith will cultivate a ministry of prayer for its leaders. He says there in verse 18, pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably But I especially urge you to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. The author of Hebrews says, I have a clear conscience. Uh, The author of Hebrews says, I'm confident in all things to live honorably. But I also know that that is not a possibility unless I also have the prayers of my people. You need to let your people know that you need them. You need to let them know that you need them on many levels. But in particular, you need to let your people know that you need them to pray for you. As I was studying for this text, I found the insights both of Kent Hughes and Charles Spurgeon to be of great encouragement to me. Listen to what Kent Hughes says. If we desire power in our lives and in our churches, we must pray. Likewise, if we desire our or others preaching to be more than exegesis and rhetoric, we must pray. How different the modern church would be if the majority of its people prayed for its pastors and lay leaders. There would be supernatural suspensions of business-as-usual worship. There would be times of inexplicable visitation from the Holy Spirit. More lay people would come to grips with the deeper issues of life. The leadership vacuum would evaporate. There would be more conversions. I think he's exactly right. And then Spurgeon, the greatest preacher of his day, said it this way, My people, shall I ever lose your prayers? Will ye ever cease your supplications? Will ye then ever cease to pray? I fear ye have not uttered so many prayers this morning as you should have done. I fear there has not been so much earnest devotion as might have been poured forth. For my own part, I have not felt the wondrous power I sometimes experience. In other words, never draw back from telling your people, I'm a sinner just like you, saved by grace, who just like you know, maybe even more than you, need your prayers. Finally, A healthy community of faith will look to Jesus as its great shepherd to perfect them in good works. Verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, 
working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews concludes with a memorable doxology, verses 20 and 21. And personal words of encouragement, verses 22 through 25. In other words, the doxology is stirring both in its beauty, but also in its theology. Interestingly, at the very end of the book, he introduces some themes that he has not touched on throughout the entire 13 chapters of the book. He talks about the blood of Jesus, the new eternal covenant. Uh, the preeminence of the Lord Jesus and the importance of persevering to the end in good works. Now, these are themes that we have previously seen, but then there are new themes introduced. For example, only here is our God called the God of peace. Uh, only here is he addressing the resurrection of Jesus. Only here is our Savior called the great shepherd of the sheep. And, of course, the Bible teaches us in John 10, he is the good shepherd. In 1 Peter 5, he is the great shepherd. Uh, the chief shepherd, and now in this text, he is called the great shepherd. Uh, let me just summarize it and bring my message to a close in this way. Let me just have 10 minutes with you, maybe 15, no more than that. Let me ask you some very specific questions about what you believe about Jesus that you are required to answer. You can't bluff. You can't, you know, uh, 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 try to back up. You, you can't try to dodge them. You've got to answer them. Give me 10 or 15 minutes with you. Let me talk to you what you believe about Jesus. And I guarantee you, I can pinpoint 95% of the rest of your theology. In fact, let me really come to understand what you think and believe about Jesus. And I'll probably be able to describe pretty accurately the way you live your life. When I went to Southern Seminary in 1996 for eight years, my goal was to meet all of the faculty, and so I would take uh, the men out for lunch and some for dinner. I'm, I'm not a breakfast person. I, anything before 10 o'clock is sinful as far as I'm concerned. And so uh, don't ever invite me to go to breakfast with you because there will be a standing answer. No, I'm not going. And so um, uh, I took this one particular professor out for lunch, and he was known as uh, a liberal. In fact, Southern was still going through a transition. In fact, this particular professor had actually studied under the German uh, scholar Rudolf Bultmann and had in many ways been infected by his demythologizing, anti-supernatural approach to the Bible. In fact, he had said in class he did not think the virgin birth was essential, and he was not sure that the resurrection even happened. So I go to lunch with him, and we sit down, and this professor looks at me and says, Can I ask you a question? And I don't mean to be rude uh, or condescending. I'm just incredibly curious. And I said, Well, you can ask me anything you want to. And he said, I want to know why you believe the way you believe. He said, uh, You have a Ph.D. And then he said, I, That sounds condescending. I don't mean it that way. He said, But, but you're, you're at least educated. I may not be intelligent, but at least you're educated. <laughs> and I just want to know... Why you believe what you believe in particular about the Bible. How is it that you can believe that the Bible is infallible and inerrant? And I looked at uh, Jim and I said, well, I don't think you're going to be all that impressed with my answers, but I'll be glad to respond to you. I said, uh, part one is this. When I was about uh, 10 or 11 years old, I got saved. And Jesus Christ became uh, my, my Lord and Savior. And my life was forever changed. I then shared that as a teenager, I didn't walk with the Lord. But in God's good grace, he got a hold of my life when I was 19. And I have to tell you, I fell in love all over again with Jesus. I just did. And uh, I'm still not over it.
And I said, because of my love for Jesus, I just became passionate about what he thought about everything. And I said, Jim, you know, I came to the Bible and I discovered that uh, Jesus believed the Bible. In fact, he believed all of it. He said in Matthew, not a jot or a tittle, not a letter or part of a letter will pass away till all of it's fulfilled. He said in John 10, 35, the, the scriptures cannot be broken. He said in John 17, 17, thy word is truth. And I said, so, you know, Jim, even Bultmann said, and he did, that Jesus had the same view of the Bible as any first century Jew. He believed it was the completely Totally and absolutely the trustworthy word of God. He just simply thought Jesus was wrong. I said, I think Jesus is right. And for me to live under his lordship, I could not believe any differently than does he. And this very intelligent, educated man looked at me and said, you know, I've never thought about it like that. But that does make sense. And we had lunch. And so the bottom line is simply this. You need to keep your focus on Jesus in every single area of your life. It will determine what you think. It will determine how you live. It may even impact the way in which you die. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this magnificent text, one I am quite sure I have not done justice to today. But Lord, might you help us see in your word the needs of for having a healthy community of faith. Isn't it interesting that there's nothing here about buildings or, or budgets? There's nothing here about the size. Simply, Lord, characteristics that emanate from the gospel that will indeed characterize a faithful, healthy community of faith. And, Lord, wherever you send these students, whether it be uh, back to a traditional church that needs reviving, to a hard place in North America or to a really difficult place around the world, might it be that it will be their passion and gold to build healthy communities of faith that reflect the gospel and bring great glory to the name of Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.